It all boils down to the fact that we've eaten for so long, we think we're experts. And most of the time, we don't even know what we're eating. There's a full-course meal, donuts and coffee. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. So the other day, I'm sitting around, drinking a glass of red wine, having a mochi. I know you love those mochis, boss man. I love that mochi, man. (laughs) I'm having a chocolate mochi and some red wine, and I'm thinking to myself, what is the best possible diet in the world? Sweet irony. (laughs) So I decided to go on an adventure, a purely intellectual adventure, (laughs) to, to find the world's best diet. In all seriousness, Ian... I'm fascinated by information around diets and really have tried a bunch of them. And honestly, I've been a little bit of a yo-yoer over the years. You know, sometimes I'm skinny, sometimes I'm overweight, and I haven't really been able to put it together. I've tried things like the paleo diet, but recently I've started to have some problems with not only adhering to the paleo diet, but also just some parts of it just weren't working for me. Is that white bread just creeping in your peripheral there? It actually wasn't that. And one of the problems that I had with it, which maybe I'll talk about at the end of the episode, was directly addressed by today's guest. And so when I went on that intellectual journey, I actually came across something that made more sense to me than the paleo diet and basically anything else I've ever found on the interwebs. And so one of the cool things about having a podcast, even if the primary topic here is business, is like, I got to talk to this guy. And I really hope that the audience gets as much out of this as I got out of it, because I think fundamentally, I mean, if you don't have your health, then you're not going to be able to run a successful business. Yeah. And I think we're interested in business, health, wealth, and personal development. And this falls into that personal development category. Absolutely. And you know, if you could choose between your money and your health, I don't think there's much of a choice there. I'd spend it all. The crazy thing is is that I think a lot of us do make that choice without knowing it. Sometimes we do sacrifice our health for our businesses, and we don't need to. Do you remember in the beginning of our business, Dan, what our health kick was? Cigarettes and Monster. Yes. Things have changed. I think red wine and mochi is (laughs) a step in the right direction. That's a step in the right direction, but interested to see what 40 brings for us. So let's talk to somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. No dairy, no sweets, only ripe vegetables, fresh fruit and whole wheat. I'm from the old school, my household. My name is Dr. Michael Gregor, MD, founder of NutritionFacts.org. My latest book is How Not to Die. It's not how to not die, but how not to die. As in prematurely in pain after a long chronic disabling illness. The good news is that we have tremendous power over our health, destiny, and longevity. The vast majority of premature death and disability is preventable with a plant-based diet and other healthy lifestyle behaviors. I found you because I was trolling the internet looking for the best possible way to eat. Could you describe briefly what that looks like in your view? 
Well, I think the best available balance of evidence suggests that the healthiest diet is one that minimizes the intake of meat, eggs, dairy, and processed junk and maximizes the intake of fruits, vegetables, legumes, or beans, split peas, chickpeas, and lentils, whole grains, nuts and seeds, mushrooms, herbs, and spices, basically real food that grows out of the ground. One of the things that was shocking to me is that this wasn't taught to you in medical school. And what was the reason that you were inspired to learn about this stuff? My grandma, actually. I was just a kid when doctors sent my grandma home in a wheelchair to die. She was diagnosed with end-stage heart disease. I had so many bypass operations. She basically run out of plumbing at some point. Confined in a wheelchair, crushing pain. There's nothing more the doctors could do. Her life was over at age 65. But then she heard about this guy, Nathan Pritikin, one of our early lifestyle medicine pioneers and became one of his early success stories. She's even actually featured in Pritikin's biography. Talks about Francis Gregor, my grandma. It's a kind of live-in program, place everyone on a plant-based diet. They wheeled her in and she walked out. Within a few weeks, she was walking 10 miles a day, went on to live another 31 years, till age 96, to continue to enjoy her six grandkids. Her miraculous recovery not only inspired one of those grandkids to want to go into medicine, but gave her enough healthy years to see him graduate from medical school. So it's really all thanks to her that not only why I'm a doctor, but why I practice the kind of medicine I practice, lifestyle medicine. Before your grandma went to the clinic, essentially she was eating what sorts of things? Oh, she was just eating the standard American diet. Everything in moderation. But, you know, you eat a standard American diet and you die from standard American disease. You mentioned that heart disease is the number one cause of death in the United States. What does that mean? Coronary heart disease is the number one cause of death. So that is heart attacks. And in fact, the number one way people die from heart disease is something called sudden cardiac death, meaning... That's death within 60 minutes of one's first symptom, meaning you don't even know you have heart disease. And then 60 minutes later, you're dead. So you feel a little twinge in your chest, got a little crushing chest pain. You know, people think of heart disease as people, oh, they have chest pain over years. It gets worse and worse. No, number one way people die is they don't even know they have it. And then all of a sudden they say, oh, this doesn't feel right. And then they're gone from the earth. So that's why an ounce of prevention is more than just a pound of cure because there is no cure for dead. So that's why we have to start eating healthy. You know, so I talk about in the book how we can actually reverse heart disease, opening up arteries without drugs, without surgery. But sudden cardiac death is the reason we cannot wait. It's never too early, never too late to start eating healthy. We got to do it today. One of the narratives in my family is that heart disease runs in the family and that certain relatives are going to the doctor regularly taking certain kinds of pills. And that's really what the discussion circles around. So if we could have like a private dinner with you, what sort of advice? would you give to my family in terms of, is that an accurate belief that it sort of runs in a family and I'm doomed to follow in those footsteps? Only if you continue to eat the family's diet and live the family's lifestyle. I mean, the reason we know that these diseases are not genetic in origin by far is that early on we had these so-called migration studies. There are populations that do not die from heart disease. So we're talking about areas like rural China, sub-Saharan Africa, where the diseases like coronary heart disease are essentially non-existent. But you say, well, maybe they just have great genes. Maybe there's just something genetically different about them. But when they move to the U.S. or Brazil or someplace else, at least like the Western and Western diet, they start dying with standard Western diet diseases like heart disease. Their genes didn't change. What changed is how they're living their lives. 
but that's the optimistic message. We have this tremendous power over our health destiny. I mean, so it's not in our genes. There are rare genetic conditions, something called familial hypercholesterolemia, where people, you know, die in their 20s from heart attacks. They have exceedingly high cholesterol. Look, but if you do have one of these genetic disorders that actually does give you high cholesterol, that's not an excuse to like throw your hands up. Okay, well, I'll just eat crap because nothing I can do. It's in my genes. No, you just have to eat healthier than everybody else. Some people can get away with eating a little crap once in a while. But for you, because you have the bad genes, oh my God, you got to eat super extraordinarily healthy. So genes are no excuse. The first half of your book, you like systematically lay out 15 top ways that people in the U.S. die. And then you show how diet and nutrition can contribute to each and every one. There's a curious lack of like healthcare and doctors mentioned. And so if you could like give somebody in their 20s, a lot of my listeners are either like follow the guidelines in my book and or have health care for the rest of your life. I mean, which option would be the better bet? It's not a matter of, huh, okay, I could do one of two things. I can clean up my diet to prevent heart disease, for example, or I can take pills, you know, every day for the rest of my life, like these cholesterol-lowering statin drugs every day for the rest of my life to prevent heart disease. That is not the question because you're like, well, look, I'll just take the pills. What's the big deal? The problem is that people wildly overestimate the power of pills and procedures to keep them healthy. For example, people, if you do surveys, people believe these cholesterol-lowering statin drugs are about 20 times more effective than they actually are in preventing heart attacks. So no wonder people continue to rely on drugs to save them. But you know, our leading killers aren't caused by drug deficiencies. The dirty little secret is that most people surveyed said they would not be willing to take many of these drugs, blood pressure drugs, cholesterol-lowering drugs, if they knew how little benefit these drugs actually offered. Whereas treating the actual cause by cleaning up our diets, not only safer and cheaper, but can be more effective in preventing, arresting, and reversing are leading causes of death. Obviously, I don't know much about diet and nutrition. So when I'm reading this book, I'm sort of outraged at some of the things I'm reading. Like many of these findings were happening decades and decades ago. Why doesn't everybody know about this? What's helped me is to look back at the whole kind of tobacco situation. So basically where we are, it's like smoking in the 50s. By the 1950s, we literally already had decades of science starting in the 30s. Decades of science linking smoking with lung cancer. But it was ignored. Why? Because smoking was normal. Most doctors themselves smoked. The average per capita cigarette consumption was 4,000 cigarettes a year, meaning the average American walking around smoked a half pack a day. The American Medical Association was assuring that everyone that smoking in moderation was fine. In fact, may actually be good for us. That's what mainstream medicine was saying. So there is this disconnect between the science and the public policy. It took more than 25 years and 7,000 studies before the first Surgeon General report came out against smoking in the 1960s, right? I mean, you think maybe after the first 6,000 studies, it could give a little people a heads up or something? Until the system changes. We need to take personal responsibility for our own health, for our family's health. We can't wait till society catches up to the science again because it's a matter of life and death. By the system, you mean that people don't really benefit from, like, nobody makes a bunch of money, basically, if everybody's eating fruits and vegetables. That is true. I mean, so doctors have a severe nutrition deficiency in education. You know, most doctors never taught the impact healthy nutrition could have on the course of illness. And so, you know, we graduate without this powerful tool in our medical toolbox. General, you know, doctors themselves simply are not paid for counseling people on how to take better care of themselves. Of course, the drug 
drug companies also play a role in influencing medical education and practice. You know, ask your doctor when's the last time they were taken out to dinner by big broccoli. <laughs> it's probably been a while, right? So wait a second. What about the broccoli lobby, right? If people eat healthy, then what about all the powerful fruit and vegetable growers where they're not powerful? Why? Because there's very little markup. They're not branded products, right? And so a broccoli grower is not going to put commercials on TV for broccoli. Why? Like you don't have a specific brand and there's no profit margin, very little profit margin. Whereas Coca-Cola, for example, they don't get around and say, how can we give kids diabetes? They sit around and say, how can we make the most money? And so you dirt cheap ingredients like sugar, which is subsidized by U.S. taxpayers, dirt cheap ingredients, sugar, water, and sell it for a couple bucks a bottle. Now that's a markup. Right, That makes money for your shareholders. Broccoli doesn't make money for your shareholders. Unfortunately, like who's going to profit? Your family is going to profit. But unfortunately, the system isn't set up to protect you and your family. I think, especially with my listeners, the paleo diet has captured the imaginations of so many in my generation. Why do you think that's the case? Oh, well, because the standard American diet is dreck. I mean, it's horrible. It's making people sick. And so someone comes along and says, wait a second. When we were, you know, evolving for millions of years, there's no such thing as Fruit Loops. So, you know, maybe Fruit Loops is not like the best thing for us, right? I mean, it's like breakfast cereals glow in the dark practically these days. <laughs> you know, and someone says, maybe it's good for shelf life, but maybe not good for human life. Like these hydrogenated oils. You know, we keep finding new things. Like, hey, don't eat butter. How about these new trans fat Crisco hydrogenated oils? Then we find out, oh my God, it's been killing tens of thousands of people every year. So I think there's that good natural inclination. Let's get back to how to eating what our bodies ate for millions of years, what our biology, what our digestive tract, what our physiology was meant to digest, to eat, and as a good starting point towards a path towards healthier eating. So the default should be what we kind of, you know, evolved eating. And then the burden of proof is really on someone who comes up with something new and not the other way around. One of the things I noticed about the paleo diet, like if I go to my Facebook feed and search for paleo, what I'm seeing primarily is like large pieces of meat and like a vegetable side. That I think is like how people have interpreted that, at least in some of my social circles. And I'm wondering, at least in the book, you mentioned that you feel like that's gone awry. So the principles, the paleo diet, actually make a lot of sense, right? We shouldn't eat donuts because we didn't evolve eating donuts. So but the people, however, use this intellectually satisfying paleo theory to basically eat all the crap they want. And that's where it breaks down. It's not the theory. It's how they translate that theory to eat the kind of crap they want to eat. So, for example, studies have been done of people eating, quote unquote, paleo diet these days. The biggest thing that separates them from people eating the standard American diet is actually not meat consumption because standard American diet, people eat a lot of meat. It's vegetable consumption. Paleo people eat more vegetables. Now, that's fantastic. But the problem is this meat-centered diet is not kind of consonant with human biology. And they say, well, wait a second. Look, go back two million years, Stone Age times. We made these stone tools and we started killing animals. And look, there's lots of evidence we ate a lot of meat. Okay, and I said, yeah, but the human beings didn't start two million years ago. Well, I mean, we branched off from our last kind of common primate ancestor 20 million years ago, back in the Miocene era. And so we evolved for 90% of our humanity 
before Stone Age, before we had these tools, what were we eating during the first 90% of our evolution? When everything, when our digestive tract, our physiology, everything was set into place, what were we eating for the first 90% of our evolution? We were eating what the rest of the great apes were eating, which is, you know, 97% plus plant-based diets. We're eating a lot of leaves, we're eating lots of fruits. That's what we ate. And then only in the last 10% did we find a way to get even more calories into our diet by eating bone marrow and brain and all these high calorically dense foods, which is great in a context of famine. If you want to just live long enough to pass along your genes before you die in your late 20s, that's a great strategy. Unfortunately, now, that's one thing that we don't have a scarcity of is calories in the modern world. And so now that we're actually living long enough to suffer from chronic disease like diabetes and obesity and heart disease and cancer, then the strategy needs to really be getting back to our original roots, eating you know lots of whole plant foods like fruits and vegetables, which have shown to be associated with longevity and lower chronic disease risk. You know, I think one of the things about the paleo, at least in the blogosphere, that they've done such a great job marketing their diet is they're basically saying like, look, you love steak and potatoes and cool vegetable things. So just get rid of the potatoes and you're good. And they've kind of like convinced us that just as long as you get rid of the white stuff, you can pretty much eat whatever you want. So my question to you is like, what's so bad about eating a big steak that's like organic or something like that? So it's a combination of the things that it doesn't have and the things that it does have. So basically, if you look at the dietary guidelines, for example, the 2015, 2020 guidelines, it says we're eating too many of what? We're eating too much, things like saturated fat, the trans fat, cholesterol, all three of which are found in that steak. What we're not eating enough of, we're extremely fiber deficient, extremely potassium deficient, deficient in other kind of phytonutrients, and that's all missing from the steaks. I'm going to interrupt our program quickly, Ian, to do a little editing here and to provide a little anecdote. Actually, while doing this interview, Dr. Greger was walking on a treadmill. Kind of cool idea. I never thought of that. All I do is sit on my ass when I record a podcast. So Yeah, sometimes I'll stand and then I'll get tired and then I'll sit down. So actually, my internet connection cut out just a bit here. So I'm going to use Dr. Greger's side of the audio, which is just a little bit lower quality, and then we'll zip back into the higher quality recording in just a minute. What's a phytonutrient? So phytonutrient, these are nutrients unique to the plant kingdom. If you look at a bag of blueberries or something, and you look at the nutrition information, they'll say, oh, it's got a little of this, got a little of that, got some vitamin C, but that's about it. But that's because we're only noting a few particular vitamins and minerals, which, you know, by law have to be on these nutrition facts. But if you actually label what was actually in them, it would be a Santa's list spilling out onto the floor of these thousands of these phytonutrients, these thousands of things like carotenoids and, you know, plant pigments like the lycopene that makes tomatoes red, the beta carotene that makes carrots orange. Most of them are antioxidant compounds that actually help slow the progression of aging and are anti-cancer and preserve cognitive health and all these things. And these are missing from animal foods and missing from processed foods because they process them out. That's why we really should be centering our diets around whole plant foods to maximize our intake of these health-promoting compounds and minimize our intake of these disease-promoting compounds. Steak's a bad choice, but look, there's worse choices. Worst choice would be processed meat. You know, bacon, ham, hot dogs, lunch meat, chicken nuggets, turkey slices, that kind of thing. That's even worse than just unprocessed red meat. So look, you may be doing better than, you know, eating that steak than going to McDonald's, but unfortunately, that's not saying much. One of the things you pointed out was the insulin response to red meat. 
which was news to me because I had spent a few years reading about these paleo writers and they had been talking about the insulin response to sugars. And I'm curious, could you just mention a little bit about the insulin response to these foods and why that might matter? Yeah. So, I mean, the whole kind of theoretical framework of these low-carb diets, which is kind of Venn diagrams in with a lot of these paleo diets, their whole concept is that insulin's evil, insulin's bad, and so we need to decrease the level of insulin secretion. And so to do that, we got to cut out carbs. You eat carbs, you eat sugar, and your insulin spikes way up. And eat sugar all day long, your insulin stays high, and that increases your risk of cancer and all sorts of other things. The kernel of truth in that is indeed insulin is bad for you. Having high insulin levels is bad for you. Being insulin resistant, so you have really high circulating levels, that's bad. But what they don't say is that you know, eat a steak with zero carbs, right? There's no starch, there's no sugar, no carbs at all. You eat a steak and your insulin shoots up. It is more insulin producing than table sugar. I mean, if really, if insulin is the devil, then what you would really do is, you know, you'd eat beans. You certainly wouldn't eat meat. You wouldn't eat refined carbs. You would eat these kind of low glycemic carbs, center your diet around whole plant foods in general, and that increases insulin sensitivity, lowers your insulin levels. It's funny that even using their own kind of theoretical basis for their eating, you would still eat a more plant-based diet. I did a lot of Googling around on that point and still have seen nobody address the issue, at least in a satisfying way. Maybe they just can't. <laughs> the paper, I think it's called the Insulinemic Index of Foods, where they just had people eat food and measure their insulin. There's no paywall. It's American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Anyone can download it. Anyone can read it. I mean, it's like, you know, has no one looked at the science? So many of these diets, so much nutrition in general. Yes, there's the commercialism and people trying to sell you things that they're profiting off of, but also these kind of just ideological, hey, that kind of makes sense to me. Therefore, you know, that's the way to do it instead of looking at the science. So people like like the raw foodists who say, look, we evolved never cooking, you know, until just the last glimpse of time. So we should just eat raw foods. And you could be like, hey, I wonder, let's compare people eating cooked foods to people eating raw foods and actually look at the science and see we have science. That's the whole point of having science to see what's true, what's not true. That's like saying we evolved without shoes. We shouldn't eat shoes. If we were talking about brands of toothpaste or your favorite music band, then I'm all for opinions, right? Look, some people like this piece of art. Some people don't like this piece of art. That's fine. But when we're talking about literally the health of you and your family, then opinions just shouldn't come into it. I mean, if there's anything that we're going to make evidence-based decisions over, it should be the life and health of our family. The best available balance of evidence should guide us about, I think, a lot of things in life, but particularly our health. Anytime anyone says something, eat this, don't eat this, you say, well, wait a second, let's look at the primary source and see if you're just making shit up. On the science point, what are the mysteries in the nutritional world? Like, what's left to find out about nutrition? Are there things over the past decade or so that you've changed your mind about based on things that you've learned through your research? Oh, there's all sorts of good stuff. I mean, there's all sorts of new excitement. It's a very dynamic field. So, for example, personally, I no longer roast my nuts anymore. I mean, I like the taste, the smell of roasted nuts, you know, roasting walnuts, for example. But it turns out that as high-protein and fat foods, at high dry heat levels, it produces these things called AGEs, advanced glycation end products, which are typically only found in meat. 
But when you roast nuts, you produce these toxic compounds. Once I found that out, okay, no longer roast my nuts. I have a series of videos currently on the benefits of vinegar, benefits of acetic acid. Started adding vinegar to all my meals. Oh, that green tea thing. I used to tell people, look, throw green tea into your smoothies. Forget just making green tea and throwing out the leaves. Why would you do that, right? You're throwing out all that nutrition. Well, just blend it in or use matcha, the powdered green tea, so you actually eat the tea leaves themselves. That makes sense until they discovered all this lead in Chinese tea plantations because they only recently got rid of leaded gas. And so fine, throw tea in your smoothies if it's Japanese tea, but if it's sourced from China, not such a good idea. So that's something I certainly backed off from. The basic foundational things really hasn't changed. I mean, there's this remarkable consistency in nutrition science literature going back decades that we should boost our intake of healthy plant foods like fruits and vegetables, limit our intake of animal foods, processed foods. I mean, the public needs and deserves to know about the overwhelming global consensus regarding the core elements of healthy living. Having said that, there are interesting questions that keep coming up in terms of, you know, little tweaks here or there. Otherwise, nutrition facts, there would be new videos and articles every day. <laughs> Just all sorts of cool, fun stuff, but it's really, you know, little tweaks. This berry's better than that berry, as opposed to are berries good or bad. You know, the fruits and vegetables thing has always been there in, in my consciousness, but the animal products thing was not one that had long been there. You know, the WHO recently found that processed meats are carcinogens, like straight up like bacon's a carcinogen. Right. So a class one carcinogen, meaning we are as sure that bacon causes cancer than we are that cigarettes and asbestos and radiation cause cancer. It is the highest class of surety that it's a cancer causing agent. Yet, this is the kind of stuff we're sending our kids to school with, right? These little like Lunchables with lunch meat. I mean, that is crazy. It's still in the federal school lunch program. These foods cause cancer. Now, other meat is considered just a probable carcinogen. It's class two. But we now know enough that processed meat is a definite human carcinogen. People shouldn't be eating it. My whole life, a meal basically means like a piece of meat in the middle and then things around it. If you're transitioning away from that, the first thing I think of is like, well, how can I hold on to the meat? So are there yellow light animal products that you can incorporate into a healthy plant-based diet? If someone wants to include animal products in their diet, then it's all about the amount. So instead of the big hunk of meat, center of the plate, meat should be a condiment, a flavoring. It should be a vehicle to get lots more, you know, vegetables into one's diet. You know, some of these healthiest populations I talked about, rural China, sub-Saharan Africa, where they were basically did not have these chronic diseases that are wiping out people in the Western world. Look, they weren't vegan. They weren't even vegetarian. You know, they had, you know, meat on special occasions. Doesn't matter what you eat on your birthday, your holidays. It's really the day-to-day -day stuff that adds up. And on a day-to-day -day basis, it really is important to center our diets as much as possible around whole plant foods. Do you think these terms vegan and vegetarian in some ways hurt the acceptance of plant-based diets? I mean, as a physician, you know, when someone tells me they're vegan, that what does that tell me? It tells me what you don't eat. It doesn't tell me what you actually do eat, right? So you go around to college campuses, you, have, you know, vegans are doing it for like environmental reasons or animal reasons. You know, they're living off of like French fries and beer. There's a lot of vegan, like Coca-Cola's vegan, right? But it's not health promoting. So that's why I prefer, you know, whole food plant-based. That tells me what you actually do eat and it doesn't have the ideological baggage. And so certainly from a medical standpoint, whole food plant based is more informative. One of the, I think, popular notions in our culture is that there's these people somewhere in the Mediterranean and somewhere on an island in Japan that are living to 100. 
Is that true? Are those people good role models or are we misunderstanding the point of those stories? These aren't just kind of anecdotes. There's these five populations, these so-called blue zones. This is work done by Dan Butner and other folks now where they actually go and they actually do a good deep dive into public health statistics and do find these areas, these regions, these populations that have more centenarians, more people live over 100 than any place else and really do live long, healthy lives. And so the question is, okay, what are they eating? What are they doing? How are they living? The common Venn diagram of all those five populations is that they're eating plant-based diets. In fact, beans, if there's one thing all five of those populations share, is they eat a lot of beans, eat a lot of legumes. You know, Okinawa Japanese, they eat about 96% plant-based diet. They're the second longest living population on the planet, the longest living formerly started population ever. They actually don't eat any meat at all. These are the Loma Linda Seven-Day Adventist vegetarians. What kind of diets, what kind of lifestyles seems to lead to optimal health that really supports this concept that we should be, you know, eating lots of whole healthy plant foods. So people that say like, oh, beans are no good for you or something like that. It's like, well, wait a second. Why do the longest live healthiest populations all eat beans? You got to take a step back and do a little kind of BS detection. So that's where these healthy populations come in. No dairy, no sweets, only ripe vegetables, fresh fruit and whole wheat. I'm from the old school. My household smell like soul. Food. First things first, before we reflect a little bit on what Dr. Gregor said, you know, I've read a lot of books on health and fitness, and I just think this How Not to Die book is fabulous. It's excellent. And I encourage anybody who's curious about their health to go check it out. By the way, we'll also have all the links to the book and other relevant things. And of course, the discussion for this episode at tropicalmba.com com slash diet. Here's a crazy admission. I got one of those full health checkups in Thailand a few years ago. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? Like you go in there, you pay like 600 bucks and they like put you through the ringer all day long. It's a pretty awesome experience. And it's kind of like sanity insurance, you know, it's like want to know I'm all good right now. And at the end of it, they give you a consultation. And I sat down with a good doctor and he said to me, you know, you're good. This is a little bit up, but, you know, generally speaking, you're good. And I just suggest that you eat more fruits and vegetables. <laughs> $600 later. Uh, $600 for that sort of advice, the sort of advice that everybody gives. And I've heard this message in so many different ways, but hearing the way Dr. Greger put it affected me differently. In some ways, I don't think I knew how to eat more fruits and vegetables. I know it's such a crazy thing to say, but so much of eating for me has been about accompanying portions of meat with fruits and vegetables. And that's not really what Dr. Greger's suggesting in the book. What he does suggest is very clear. He actually like lays out all the reasons at the end of the book. It's sort of charming, like why he shouldn't suggest to people what they should eat. And then he says, but everybody's asking me, so I'm going to do it anyway. And then he does so. And I've essentially been copying a lot of his recipes over the last few weeks. And I'm just surprised by how fulfilling and exciting and interesting it can be to eat a plant-based diet. So does the fruit and vegetables go inside of the sandwich or or is that on the side of the sandwich? How's that work? <laughs> right. It's like for me, like eating more fruits and vegetables meant like a higher stack of green beans next to my giant steak. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> this is very disturbing information. Growing up on lunch meat, still liking to eat a hoagie at least five times a week. And now living in Texas where barbecue is kind of the dish to have. But I guess when you find out that bacon causes cancer the same way cigarettes does, it does make you question your decisions at the breakfast table. 
It's an open topic, Ian. It's a fascinating one. Can't wait to cook you some plant-based meals and, of course, have a mochi and a cider red wine. Because he didn't <laughs> specifically mention those two items. So I'm sticking with them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is an open topic. <laughs> what do you think is the world's best diet? We want to hear from you, your links, resources, books, opinions. We'll read it all. TropicalMBA.com slash diet. Thanks for listening. And Bossman, we'll be back next Thursday morning. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.